You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Our topic today is temptation, sanctification, um, lust, those kinds of things. And so I want to talk about a, a, two, two resources that um, I, I hope are helpful, I, I believe are helpful. And the first is this book by Paul Tripp. It's just a blank cover. I took off the dust jacket, sorry. Um, Paul Tripp, Sex and Money, Pleasures That Leave You Empty and Grace That Satisfies. I think this is a really excellent job of helping diagnose um, the underlying issues underneath um, um, uh, sexual sin underneath, I haven't read the money part of it, I assume it's good, underneath um, money uh, problems, uh, desires um, for, for wealth and money and material things. Uh, so I highly rec- recommend this book. It's really, really good. Um, honest, straightforward, um, very diagnostic, gospel-centered, and the goal is to help us grow in our view of these things in a, in a godly way. And um, so very good, sex and money. Again, I've only read the sex part, so can't speak for the money part. Um, and the other book is this. It's not really a book. It's a pamphlet. It's called The New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. And this was written by a minister in a um, sister denomination in the United Reformed Churches of North America, Chris Gordon. He's in California. And uh, it, it's very short. The whole thing is, um, what, 31 pages, but they're small pages. And it's set up... Um, Supposed to, it's trying to follow the Heidelberg Catechism. He's he's in a uh, in a denomination that follows the, the the three forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's it's tried to it, he tries to set it up like that, um, and it's really good. Uh, of course, you know, there's little phrases and wordings. I would rather it say something slightly different. This was written by an individual. It says no church authority of anything of any kind like that, but uh, it's a good resource. It's something it's it's really good just to um, look up, uh, read through. Um, meditate on. He's actually preached a sermon series, or I think he's in the middle of preaching a sermon series through that um, because it's so biblically grounded. He's preaching on the text that, that that's grounded in. So I'll just mention those today. There's more we'll come back to in time, but I want to put those in your hand. We're, we're walking through this PCA sexuality report, these 12 statements, these summarizing the, the, the bulk of this report um, we've talked about marriage, gender, original sin, sinful desire, concupiscence, um, the, the great big uh, $10 word there. Um, and we're today looking at statements six through nine. So that handout is around. Does everybody have a handout? Does anybody need a handout? We're going to be walking through this. We'll see how much we get through because we're going to have a little detour here in the middle. Um, but that is our plan today. Uh, I'll pause. Questions, comments? concerns before we get into the substance. All right. And um, so my plan, big picture, is this. Next week, we will finish up the report, hitting the the final highlights, the final few sections. And then um, when I come back for a couple more weeks on this topic, we will um, go back and really dive more deeply into the uh, ideas of of sex, gender, what is that? 
and then marriage as well. Really do a deep dive. We did a brief cursory overview, but we're going to go dive more deeply into that in a little bit uh, when we come back around. I was out of town the last couple of weeks. I was on study leave two weeks ago, and then this past week I was go- mostly gone to Atlanta for a denominational thing. So I'm glad to be back. Glad to be back in the saddle, and here we go. So. Um, let's turn our attention to statement number six, which is temptation. Um, statement six, temptation. Um, and I'm just going to read it. We'll stop and um, comment and discuss as we walk through it. We affirm that scripture speaks of temptation in different ways. There are some temptations God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials and other temptations God never gives us because they arise from within as morally illicit desires. Um, we'll stop there. Uh, we, we talked about temptation actually not too terribly long ago through um, the Lord's Prayer at the end of the Shorter Catechism. You may remember we walked through that and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We talked about this a little bit where there is a distinction, even in um, James 1. Let me just read these really quickly. If you want to turn there, that would be great. And, and I even brought up these same passages when we talked about it then. James 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Um, trials is there in verse 2. And then the other verse is 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. However, it's this same word used in verse 2 and verse 13 and 14. So verse 2 says, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. And it, and it goes on saying that God is giving us these trials. But then it says God doesn't tempt you. It's actually the same word. And what we understand by these is there are some trials that are, that are morally neutral. These trials are not them in and of themselves sin, and those come from without, as we'll see in a moment. The, the desires that arise from within are those sinful temptations, um, those trials, those, those temptations that God does not give us. Those are our own flesh and the world and Satan who is trying, trying to lead us astray there. So it's important to recognize that temptation is used different, several different ways in Scripture. We need to be careful uh, when we think about what, uh, what the text is saying. Um, next sentence is when temptations come from without, then the temptation itself is not sin, unless we enter into the temptation. But when the temptation arises from within, it is our own act and is rightly called sin. So this is really summarizing what we've said the past few times, is these temptations from inside of us are desires. They're sinful desires that are trying to lead us astray, and those desires are sin. We call them temptation, um, but they are sin. Nevertheless, there's an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin and giving in to sin, even when the temptation is itself an expressing, expressing of indwelling sin. So pause there. We're saying there's a difference between the internal temptation and actually carrying it out. There's a moral difference here. It is much more heinous to carry out the desire that you have internally, the internal temptation. So it is far more heinous to carry it out. It's still sin to to even have the desire, internal desire and temptation, but it is far more heinous to carry it out. So we're trying to make these two categories distinct. While our goal is the weakening and lessening of internal temptation to sin, Christians should feel their greatest responsibility, not for the fact that such temptations occur, but for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting the temptations when they arise. We even talked about last time, sometimes um, desires well up in us and we're like, whoa, where did that come from? 
right? It is sin, but the point here is not to say, oh, look, woe is me, I'm a terrible, awful person. The point here is to say, flee from that sin, get away from that sin. Yes, it is sin, and we, we repent, and we name it, and we acknowledge it, and we seek to kill that, but our obligation when that happens is to flee from it, to run away from it, not to just say, oh, I'm a terrible person, I might as well just give in. Um, no, we flee from it, and that's the, the primary thing here. What's your, what's your response when temptation comes from, bubbles from within? To flee, to run away, and even temptation from without as well, obviously, run away. So... Um, I think that's a really helpful pastoral statement that when you feel the temptation internally, yes, it's sin and we repent, but we shouldn't be stuck in the guilt and the weight of that forever and ever. We're to see it, identify it, repent of it, and run away from it. We can avoid entering into, is that right? Yes, we can avoid entering into temptation by refusing to internally ponder and entertain the potential desire to actual sin without some distinction between the illicit temptations that arise in us due to sin and the willful giving over to actual sin, Christians will be too discouraged to make every effort at growth and godliness and will feel like failures in their necessary efforts in their necessary efforts to be holy as God is holy. So did you catch that? Again, it's, it's pressing that same point that the importance here is refusing to internally ponder and entertain that, that sin, that uh, temptation. We are not to, um, we're, we're to understand that as a different category from giving, being, giving over ourselves to that desire. These are two separate things, both sinful, but one is more heinous than the other, and one we must flee from. And of course, we're going to talk about how, we, how do we kill these desires in the first place. Um, but I really appreciate this because it doesn't want us to be overly discouraged, to walk around in just a heap of sadness all the time. Because we would be if this is what our own temptations led us to do all the time. If we looked at our own temptations, we would say, wow, we are sinful people. And we are sinful people, but thanks be to God for Jesus Christ that all of our sin is forgiven. And now we run away from that temptation and Christ is at work renewing our heart and even killing these desires. Um, we'll read this, this last sentence. God is pleased with our sincere obedience, even though it may be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And I love that word, pleased. You think that God is pleased with you? It's so easy, I think, for um, curmudgeonly Calvinists to never think God is ever pleased. That's not true. God is pleased with his children. And he's pleased when we take, especially when we take these intentional acts of running from our sin and hating our sin. God is pleased with our sincere obedience. Yes, it's not perfect. Yes, we're always going to be filled with sin. And the more we grow in, in, in godliness, the more we're going to see how impure our hearts are. But that doesn't lead us to despair. That leads us to the glory of Christ and leads us to hate our sin and to run from it. But it doesn't lead us to despair. All right, temptation. That was really quick. Um, take a few moments to, to discuss here if you'd like. My my thinking is, or my, it seems to me there's a fine line between a thought and a temptation. And I'm thinking of the external temptation that is not a sin unless we act upon it. But the external temptation we have when we think about that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is a sin. I would the thought is the temptation is not unless we act upon it. 
It depends on what the thought is. We're going to do a case study here in a moment that I hope will illuminate that. That's really good. Thank you for raising that, Ray. And raise it again if I don't scratch the itch in a moment. Let's, let's look at this um, and a case study that we hear about all the time, and I'm not sure we're very clear on and careful with. Lust. What is it? What is the thought, right? What is the sin here? What is, what is going on? I, I hope to bring some clarity. Um, and clearly, you know, we, we hear this statement from Matthew all the time, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So there's even, what he's saying is there's a posture of my heart that is sin. When there's lust, there is sin. That is sin. That is violating the seventh commandment. That is adultery of the heart, Jesus says. Now this word, uh, epithumeo, uh, is the word for lust, lustful intent. And it's really a, a, a somewhat generic term that speaks of desire, or even a strong desire. And in this context, clearly, it's talking about um, everyone who looks at a woman with desire. It has clearly sexual overtones here. So that's, that's the, the point of this word here in this context. It's looking with sexual desire at another person. And lust is translated lust in English. Um, I, I think this, this definition captures it pretty well. Lust is uncontrolled or illicit sexual desire or appetite. Now, actually, lust is more general as well. It doesn't necessarily mean something sexual, but it's become 90% of the time we use it. It's a sexual term. So uncontrolled or illicit sexual desire. Notice that, right? There's, there's uh, sexual desire in the right places, but that still can be uncontrolled and that's still lustful. And then there's illicit desire um, that, is, uh, that is also described as lust. Jason, how do you the difference between Getting there. We'll get there in a moment. Good. So... Um, here, here, here's a few comments I'll make, and then, then we're going to open up the floodgates. Here we go. Um, all right, so lust is not simply noticing somebody else's beauty or attractiveness. Same sex, opposite sex. To see somebody and say that person is beautiful or attractive, that is not lust. That's an okay thought. That is actually a good thought because I'm saying God has created this person beautifully. And in fact, every single person, we look around the room, every single person is beautiful and attractive and glorious because they are endowed with the image of God made by our creator, good. So this is actually a good thing to see somebody and say, this person is beautiful. This person is attractive. This person is glorious because they are displaying the glory of our creator. This is good. So it is not sinful to notice somebody else's beauty or even attractiveness. But it is lust to indulge in somebody else's beauty. Now here, this is, this is the line I'm trying to create. It's not lustful or sinful to notice, but it is to indulge in that. And here's the... the, the um, Here's the chain here. Begins with looking, right? You see something, and that leads to the desire. That leads to this, this, this yearning, this um, indulging that leads to consuming that person in your mind and in your heart. Using that person for your own ends. Dehumanizing that person because you want to use them, even if it's in your heart. That's this indulging. That's seeing that person as somebody for me to use and abuse even in my heart, even with just my eyes. It's indulging their beauty 
by desiring it and consuming it. And so positively, as we think about um, sexual purity and, and holiness and how do we honor God, what, what the goal of the seventh commandment is, which is really showing men and women how to relate to one another and holiness, that's why I'm not committing adultery, but it, it's how am I in my whole life, am I holy and pleasing to God sexually and in the way I relate to women and for women, how they relate to men. Um, the question is this, am I building them up and honoring that person and their creator, or am I using that person for my own pleasure? That's the question. Is that person, am I just using for my sake, or am I seeing that person and glorifying God, and that person is glorifying God? Am I building them up and honoring them? Lust dehumanizes and love rehumanizes. When I love somebody, I humanize them when I look at them. They're humans made in God's image. They're a glorious product of our creator. When I'm lusting, I'm dehumanizing them. I'm degrading them. I'm making use of them for my own purposes. Um, the larger catechism has a few things to say. Uh, there's a lot here. Um, the seventh commandment requires chastity and body, mind, affections, words, and behavior watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. So chastity, a purity, a holiness, a, um, an honoring other people with watching my eyes, that what I'm, what I'm doing is pure and holy and all the senses even. And then the seventh commandment forbids, uh, larger catechism 139, it forbids all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes and affections. And it's interesting, you don't go to the, the catechism doesn't define what lust is. It's interesting. It doesn't even say lust is sin. It says um, unclean lusts um, or unnatural lusts. I can't remember. Does anybody remember? The natural or unclean? I don't remember. But it actually has an has a adjective with lust. But here I think it's defining what we typically call lust, an unclean imagination, thought, purpose, and affection. That is what the seventh commandment forbids. So we think practically, and I want to circle back to some of these questions that were asked. Um, I circle back to think about lust kind of in real time and in real situations. Um, sometimes people will say, okay, you see, you see somebody for the first time, that's not sin, but it's the glance back that's sinful. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. That first look could be sin. If that look, you, that look leads to desire, leads to consuming, that is sinful. And yes, don't look back. Don't do that again. Work at your heart. But then at the same time, if that person you're looking at, you're lusting after that person, the, the, the goal and the object here, maybe you do look away for the time, but the goal and object is to not say that person is a predator, that person is someone to avoid, that person is dangerous. What I say is, wow, my heart is dangerous. I need to learn how to humanize and care for that person and not use them for my own ends. So the first look can be lustful. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. It's your heart that, can, that determines that. Question is this, when you lust, whose fault is it? Um, whose fault is it? We ask this question in um, membership classes all the time. Um, when you sin, or not membership, in, in membership interviews. Um, when you sin, you know, your, your, you know, your sibling yells at you and you yell back at them, you're angry at them. Is that your, your, your sibling's fault when you do that? No, that's your fault right? You're responsible for your reaction. 
Lust is the person lusting's fault. It is their sin. They can't push the blame on somebody else. They can't say, well, somebody else sinned against me first. That person didn't wear what they were supposed to wear. You cannot do that because lust is the luster's sin. And they're responsible for it. Period. And I, I want to try to say something to correct, I think, um, a lot of things I've heard in church generally most of my life. And that's that men are visual people, and so therefore men are going to be struggling with lust their whole life. You heard something like this. Women aren't visual, so this isn't a big deal for women. Men are visual, so they're going to deal with lust their whole life. Um, one... I don't even know where that comes from, that idea comes from. Um, I, I don't know if that's scientifically proven or anything of that sort. So I think it's not helpful to characterize this different for men and women. Um, but I do want to say this. Men are not condemned to a life of lusting. And men, you need to know that there's hope. If you're lusting, men and women, if you're lusting, there is hope, there is change. That is possible. Um, you And men, you cannot blame your sin on being a man. And I think this happens so often because we hear this so often. Men are visual and this is just what happens. Well, then guys just say, well, I can't help it. It's just who I am. But you are not condemned to a life of lusting. This desire can be rooted out and you can grow. And women need to hear this uh, because the way it's been said um, um, in the church, generally, women need to hear that men are not lusting animals. Men are not lusting animals. Men have become, uh, in the church, I know this is true, women have seen men as purely something to avoid because they're dangerous because you don't know if they're looking, looking at you and lusting after you. And it is not true that that is what men do whenever they're interacting with women. And I think we need to know this and we need to be careful in how we think about lust and relationship between men and women. So men are not condemned to a life of lusting. Um, all right, so I've, uh, I've exhausted some of my thoughts. John, and then, um, yeah, well, first, attraction. Um, ask your question again if you didn't feel like it was, if it was answered. Well, I think, yeah, you were kind of getting at it there. I didn't have a second aspect to it, which is just, if you do lust after somebody, you know, Yeah. Mm -hmm. You are. You are. Yes, absolutely. Because what you've done is used them for your own end. You're, you're sinning against them. Now, I do not recommend if you, if you lust after somebody to go confess your sin to that person. <laughs> I'm serious. This happens. That is not helpful. Go talk, go talk with me or somebody else, right? And we'll, we'll work through this, right? It is good to confess your sins. And if you sin against somebody, to confess that to that person. But <laughs> sins of the mind are a different thing. Yes, John. A proportionality or, or appropriate action um, because all, all people and are, have a different type of sin. This sin in particular, which is, seems to be particularly heinous in general. Um, are the different stages and levels of, of lust or pornography mm -hmm. or, um, and we need to all take actions. How can we even have a framework for if we are taking appropriate action against this sin, mm -hmm. such as mm -hmm. a person's up 
two times a week for two hours looking at the internet mm-hmm. in ways that they shouldn't. Right. Or right. a person once every two, three months looks at the internet for half an hour in ways that they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. What, how, how can we gauge that? And where's the appropriateness of different types of interventions? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's really, um, it's hard to answer that in any blanket way because every person is different, every case is different, everything that's going on is different. And I would say, um, at, the, at the very least, talk with an elder or pastor and help let them work with, work, work with you through this. Um, and I think this needs to be, when you're talking about particularly pornography, it needs to come to the light. And it's, it's not going to, to die unless it comes to the light. And um, it's the most terrifying thing, um, but it needs to come to the light and so that you can work through it. You've got to name it and own it to kill it. So, um, but I, I don't know that I can name anything. We're, we're going to hit on some things in the next section on sanctification that's talking about this. How do we grow in holiness? Um, but I'm not sure I can say there's these three steps or these three things and here's how you measure it that you can do to, to know for sure you're, you're doing the right thing. Um, yeah, Jared. <coughs> Yep. Right. No, I, I think that's good. And and for your information, I'm taking the same general concepts and repackaging them. And I'm, I'm working through all this with the high schoolers as well. Um, I've already heard great questions from them about, okay, what does it mean we're single? Right? What does the seventh commandment mean for me? I'm single and hope to get married one day. And so that's it's exactly what, what you're talking about there. So I'm, I'm hoping we're able to do some good work with the high schoolers um, in this right now. All right, let's go, to, um, let's go to this next section on sanctification. We'll see how much we can get through the rest of these three sections. Um, sanctification, and uh, I, I'm not going to spend too much time here. We affirm that Christians should flee immoral behavior and not yield to temptation. That's what we've been saying this whole time. By the power of the Holy Spirit working through the ordinary means of grace, Christians should seek to wither, weaken, and put to death the underlying idolatries and sinful desires that lead to sinful behavior. So working through the ordinary means of grace, that's saying one of the things we need to be doing is worshiping with God's people. We need to be we need to be meditating on God's word. We need to be praying and talking with our creator. These are the ordinary means of grace, word, sacraments, prayer. 
This is how God builds us up. So number one, I, I knew a, a pastor who would say, people would come to him for counseling and said, I will only do counseling with you if you come to worship morning and evening every week in prayer meeting on Wednesday night. I won't counsel you if you don't. Because if you're not sitting under the ordinary means of grace, you can't expect change in your life. We need to be under God's word. We need to be worshiping. We need to hear God's word and participate in the sacraments. Um, and so through these ordinary means, and then yes, particular attention to sin, um, we seek to wither, weaken, and put to death those underlying idolatries. I think that's where the, the uh, Paul Tripp book is really good. It's showing those underlying idolatries that are there, and how do we kill that? And then, even more, how do we grow good fruit? How do we now seek to love our neighbors? How do we care for them? instead of sinning against them. The goal is not just constant fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, but the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires through the rendering of the loves of one's heart towards Christ, or reordering of one's, loves, uh, one's heart towards Christ. Sorry, I'm reading too fast. But the goal here is not to stop sinning. The goal here is to reorient our hearts, to make them conform to the heart of Christ. And yes, we work hard to stop sinning. We, we try to kill sin, but uh, we talk about mortification, killing sin, but we don't often talk about the other side, vivification. What that means? Creating life, new life, vivifying, bringing life. Vivification is bringing life throughout our lives, growing in holiness. So there's mortification, but it has to be paired with vivification and growing more like Christ, reordering our loves through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we shall make we can make substantial progress in the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Quoting there from, um, I thought it was Peter, but they don't they don't quote it there. Anyway, one of those other passages: "No man can see the Lord." That's Hebrews. With holiness, without which no man can see the Lord, um, we can make substantial progress. You're not condemned to your pattern of sin that you find yourself in now. You're not even condemned to the pattern of desires that rise up within you. By virtue of being united to Christ in his death and resurrection, you are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. And God's spirit is at work in you. Now let's read the second part paragraph here. This is nevertheless. Nevertheless, this process of sanctification, even when the Christian is diligent and fervent in the application of the means of grace, will always be accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Pause there. Sanctification is not purely linear. Sanctification is not something that you every single day you say, well, I sin one last time today. Tomorrow, yep, I'll sin one last time today. Next day, yes, I sin one last one, one less time today. That's not how it works. It is met with many weaknesses and imperfections, with the spirit and the flesh warring against one another until final glorification. It's hard. We are waging war daily. And sanctification is not linear. The believer who struggles with same-sex attraction should expect to see the regenerate nature increasingly overcome the remaining corruption of the flesh. But this progress will often be slow and uneven. So again, we're applying this to the particular issue of the day when this was written a few years ago. Same-sex attraction. It's saying specifically somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction in a sexual erotic way is, this is saying, you should expect as a Christian for that desire to become less and less as your heart is being conformed to that of Christ's. And yes, it may be uneven. It may be difficult. It may not, it may not be killed completely in this life. This may be a sin you struggle with the rest of your life. But you should expect that God is at work. 
Moreover, the process of uh, mortification and vivification involves the whole person, not simply unwanted sexual desires. Um, this is everything, our whole, our whole person. So we're not trying to uh, single out sexual sins, lusts, and um, pornography, and same-sex sex attraction, and um, uh, gen- uh, a desire to be the sex you are not, right? transgenderism. We're not just trying to, to, to name these as issues that are particularly um, the worst ones out there, but these are ones that are particularly in our mind because of the culture we're in today. We do this with all of our lives, with the whole person. The aim of sanctification in one's life cannot be reduced to attraction, and one's sexual life cannot be reduced to attraction to persons in the opposite sex. Though some persons may experience movement in this direction, but rather involves growing in grace and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The goal of, of um, growing in holiness sexually as somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction, the goal is not for them, instead of to lust after people of the same, same sex, for them to lust after people of the opposite, opposite sex. That's not the goal. We don't want them to be turned from same-sex lusters to opposite-sex lusters. That's not the goal. The goal is for purity in heart and mind, for them to have sexual desires that will be um, for a spouse in a marriage between a man and a woman, or maybe they aren't, they aren't married. And that is okay, too. It's a, it is, can be a difficult calling, but maybe some people do not lead to, uh, do not um, end in marriage in this life. And that is God honoring and glorifying. So the goal is not opposite sex lust. All right, there's a lot here. Um, any burning questions, comments, feedback? Yes, ma'am. Right, right. Sure. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, if you go to the Middle East, um, I don't think there are uh, men who lust, lust less because women are covered from head to toe. Um, that's not ultimately the issue. I think, yes, for the sake of others, we do desire to dress modestly because modesty, first and foremost, isn't even about sexuality. It's about doing that which is appropriate in the moment. Paul was telling uh, the women in the early church, um, don't wear your jewelry and your fine braids and all this kind of stuff because you're alienating people when you do that. That's not, that's, it's immodest to wear expensive clothing to church. That's what he was saying. Um, it's immodest. Now, that, that's um, socioeconomic um, modesty. There's also um, sexual modesty. Yeah, that's absolutely an important thing we need to talk about, but not, we don't talk about it in such a way to say, look, girls, if you don't wear this, the guys are going to be all over you. That's not helpful for girls, I think, because then they're, they're now afraid of being a sexual being, and they're now afraid when they walk through the room that all the guys are now using and abusing them in their mind. Um, we, we, modesty is important, to honor God. Modesty is important because I don't need to draw unwanted, or I don't need to draw sexual attention to myself. Why am I doing that? Um, that's a sinful desire to have, want that sexual attention. So that's where I think we need to have the modesty discussion. Um, and it is important for sure. Um, yeah. Right. Always having desires. The same token, I think too many churches have told women just because you were born in a female body means that you are a hundred percent responsible That's right. for any sort That's of right. lust or impurity That's right. to your brothers. And having that bird in place in the animalistic bird is kind of an equal. That's right. That's right. Has those sinister, sinister undertones. 
Well said. Well said. Very good. Yeah, Ray. Right, right. Right, that's right. Yeah, how do we handle that? I think um, the, the best non-believers can, can hope for is behavior modification. And behavior modification is a really good thing. If somebody is uh, out, you know, um, sexually abusing women all the time and he modifies his behavior and he stops doing that, that's a really good thing, right? That's not ultimate, that's not eternal, that's not fixing the root problem, but behavior modification is a good thing. So if we see, I'm making situations up in my mind, a, a, a child who's not a believer and is an adult and they're making really terrible decisions in their life, um, we do want behavior modification. We don't want them being destructive to other people. Whether that means they're lying, they're thieving, they're gambling, they're whatever it is, they're, they're um, you know, having all kinds of sexual partners, we want them to stop that because that's not inherently good for them. That's harming them and harming other people. And so for non-believers, behavior modification is good, but it's not getting at the root. And so we can talk to non-believers and say, look, I can see your desire for these things. It's really showing there's a real brokenness. You must feel really broken. And it must be really hard struggling with these desires and these, these um, things that you, these, these habits you keep falling into that are destructive. You can fix your behavior, and I want to help you with that. But ultimately, you need Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity to share that there's a greater hope than behavior modification. They may not want behavior modification. That's the hard part. Our world doesn't want, doesn't want to change. Um, they they uh, see sin, and they extol sin. Um, but we need to un- help them understand it's destructive and harmful to them, even right here, right now in this life. But then ultimately, yeah, they're, they're condemned before our Heavenly Father. So, um, good, good question. I want to try to hit statement eight quickly here. And um, this is the one I, I had planned actually not even to talk about, but it's important enough. And, and I want to set the stage here because one of the arguments used 2018 to 2020, it was a really big argument I heard all the time. And it's really sad. Um, where the statement of Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Um, that statement was made by people in the PC, right? That, that, that statement was understood by people, even in the PCA and our own, you know, denomination. They would say Jesus struggled with same-sex attraction. Jesus struggled with lust. Woman at the well. This is Jesus struggling with lust. Jesus with John. That's Jesus struggling with same-sex attraction. Christians, people in the PCA, were saying this, and so this statement is is geared at at, at countering those statements. Um, this, so statement number eight is saying, no, that is not true. But how do we also affirm Jesus was tempted in every way? So it's trying to, to help us understand this. So I'm just going to read it. We affirm the impeccability of Christ. Impeccability means inability to sin. Christ's inability to sin. The incarnate Son of God neither sinned in thought, word, and deed, or desire, nor had the possibility of sinning. They're really long footnotes here that would bump it on the third page, so I removed them. Go find the real thing if you want the footnotes. Christ experienced temptation passively in the form of trials and the devil's entreaties. So these external temptations that we were talking about earlier, not actively in the form of disordered desires. He did not have internal temptations, the active temptation, the internal desires. Christ did not have that, but he had the external passive temptations. Christ had only the suffering part of temptation, where we also have the sinning part. Christ had had no inward disposition or inclination to the least evil, being perfect in all graces and all their operations at all times. 
Nevertheless, Christ endured from without real soul-wrenching temptations which qualified him to be our sympathetic high priest. Christ assumed a human nature that was susceptible to suffering and death. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So Christ's temptations from without were real soul-wrenching temptations, but they were not temptations of his own heart, where his heart was leading him astray. They were external temptations, messages from the outside saying, hey, come deny your father. You can have the kingdom. You can have everything. He never gave in to that. He never entered into temptation, but that temptation was made to him. The overture was made to him. And he said, no. And he used God's word right back at Satan and said, no, I will not enter enter into temptation. It was not welling up from within him. Jesus did not struggle with same-sex attraction. He did not struggle with internal lust. No, he saw the woman at the well and loved her as someone made in God's image and interacted with her and cared for her, right? We can interact with people of the opposite sex in ways that are not sinful as Christ did. And so... This is an important statement, um, less important for us now because I don't hear these arguments anymore. This, this, this study report really did away with those arguments, and I'm very, very thankful because that's heretical um, to, to argue those things of our Savior. Um, identity. We are 90 seconds away from the end. Yes? Would you say that, I mean, Jesus certainly had a desire, though, right, for if he was human, there would be something about But it was always, he didn't have the desire to, for that to usurp his father. So his greatest desire was expressed, Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. His greatest desire was to serve his father. His greatest desire was no matter what, he was committed to the divine mission that he was on. Um, and so what Satan was trying to do is the same way Satan was trying to do in the garden. He said, did God really say? He's trying to, to plant doubt in his mind and to create a desire. Well, there's a difference between having a hierarchy of desires where God wills at the top and saying that desire doesn't exist. If desire doesn't exist at all, and there's no sacrifice. Then there is no supernatural about well, so, so there's a, a rightful desire for um, being able to have influence and to care for other people and, and a rightful desire for power, not for power's sake, but in order to wield it in a good way. There's, there's a rightful desire for that, and that's okay. But I think the, the desire that Satan was trying to create in, in Christ was a desire that that was supreme, that he wanted to usurp, uh, he wanted, he wanted to, to forego the plan of the divine persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the plan of redemption, so that Christ could have all the glory. And that was what Satan was trying to create in his heart. And he said, no, I don't want that. I hate that. In fact, I want God's word. I want that which is good. So you're right. It depends on how we want to talk about it. Um, the sinful desire was never there. A rightly ordered desire was there. And he was trying to take a rightly ordered desire and make it supreme. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not going to go to identity, but I want to read one sentence. So the point here is this. Does my sin identify me or do I simply identify that I sin? That's, that's the question here. And the latter is, is, is the case. Um, let me find the sentence I want to read. Um, okay, here we go. This is the second paragraph. Um, the, the word that starts on the right-hand side. That is, we name our sins, but we are not named by them. 
We name our sins, but we are not named by them. We are named holy and righteous and pure because of Christ, but we do name our sins. We identify, I struggle with X, Y, and Z sins. This is an ongoing fight that I'm having is with the sin, but I am not a murderous Christian. I'm not a lusting, a lusting Christian, as if that's like defining who I am. Maybe a Christian who struggles with lust, who wants to put to death the desires of the flesh, but I am a holy, righteous believer in Christ because of what he has done. There's lots more to say. We'll keep wrapping this up next time. We'll, we'll revisit some of these themes in this last uh, statement number nine next time, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth that we are declared righteous and you are working in our lives making us more and more righteous day by day as we live a life to your glory. We pray that these things would not discourage us, but that they would allow us to look to you, our heavenly Father, and to give you thanks for what Christ has done on our behalf. May you purify us and, and, and make us holy. May you sanctify us, continue this wonderful work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.